welcome to the New Life Fellowship podcast. New Life Fellowship is a community of grace in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. Our goal is to teach and share and experience the life of Jesus Christ together. You're about to listen to a message from one of our meetings. Please make sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca. Without further ado, let's listen in. Morning. For those of you who are new or if you're joining us online, don't know me, I'm, I'm Ross Gilbert. I'm the, the lead pastor here. And I'm, uh, I'm excited about this morning as we're going to continue on in our series in, in 2 Corinthians. But really, to, to fully grasp, I think, this, this passage here, we have to kind of remember what we looked at when we were going through the book of Genesis. And we, we only covered the first few chapters of Genesis, but I'm, I'm a big believer that understanding those, those early chapters, particularly understanding chapter 3, gives you understanding and insight as to what we're up against, what we're, we're battling with. So you think about the, the beginning, the, the Garden of Eden that God created. I mean, it was, it was paradise. That's literally what the word Eden means. That uh, Adam and Eve had everything they needed. Everything they required was there in abundance. Be it food, be it uh, warmth, be it uh, just enjoyment in terms of their physical needs. But even more importantly, all their needs were met in their soul, in their spirit. That, that sense of peace and, and hope and, and love and acceptance and approval. They had it in, in spades. So much so that the last thing God tells us about the Garden of Eden in the end of chapter 2, after he talks about the creation of it and, and, and bringing together Adam and Eve together, he has this last statement at the end of chapter 2, last verse, and he says that Adam and Eve were both naked and unashamed. There was no shame. There was no insecurities, no, no problems, no flaws, no, no, no sense that there was something wrong with them. They were completely relaxed, completely comfortable in their own skin, completely able to receive the love of God to them. That was paradise. And then we saw that in chapter 3, the, the, what we call the fall, or what I like to refer to it as the great gasp. Because at, in that moment of, of their sin, when Adam and Eve ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, the tree that God promised, the day you eat, you will surely die, they experienced death. And, and I like the term a great gasp because it's sort of like a fish. You think about a fish underwater. Does that fish underwater breathe oxygen? It does, right? The, the water passes through the gills. The gills extract the oxygen, allowing the fish to breathe the oxygen. That's all the marine biology I know, by the way, but I know that much. And so they're breathing that oxygen underwater. And that was sort of what it have been like for Adam and Eve in the garden. They're just immersed and surrounded by the love of God, the, the acceptance of God. And they could breathe that in like that fish underwater. But then that fish, like the fish being pulled out of the water... It doesn't lose air. Air doesn't suddenly disappear, but it can't access it anymore. It can't receive it anymore. In the same way, Adam and Eve, the moment they sinned, they were now disconnected. They were cut off from the love of God. It's not that God stopped loving them. It's not that he held back his love and acceptance. They could no longer receive it now because of the state and the condition that they were in. Another way to think of it is, is their bucket 
that was being constantly filled with love and acceptance and worth and peace and hope and joy and goodness. Everything they needed was constantly being filled up and overflowing in their bucket. Suddenly, the bottom got blown off and nothing could stay in it anymore. And no longer could they receive that love. No longer could they receive that acceptance. And so what happens now is their experience is one filled with shame. No longer naked and unashamed, now they're filled with shame. So let's define what shame is. Shame, shame is the belief that I'm intrinsically, that I'm fundamentally at the core of my being, I'm flawed and I'm broken beyond repair. That I am uniquely and most completely a complete failure at my core. That's who I am. And, and because of that, because I'm so uniquely flawed, I can't be truly loved and accepted. It's impossible because I'm just such a mess. And therefore, any love, any approval, any acceptance, any validation that does come my way simply cannot be true by definition. And so I reject it. Because if, if you really knew my flaws, if you really knew what was wrong with me, if you really knew my, my failures, my struggles, my faults, my addictions, my struggles, the thoughts that go through my mind, if you really knew all those, even a little bit of what I'm struggling with, you would remove all that love and acceptance and instead you would be disgusted with me and sadly, rightly so. That's what shame says. And so that's the, that's the message that Adam and Eve are experiencing the moment they eat of that tree of knowledge of good and evil. And, and the reaction now is filled with shame. And that's the same story for you and I. And so now we, we have all these personal messages of shame, messages about our physical appearance. Am I, am I strong enough? Am I, am I thin enough? Am I overweight or, or am I fat and ugly? Is there something wrong with how I look? Am I, am I muscular enough? Am I, do I have the, the fit in the right outfit in the right way? Or maybe there's shame over my accomplishments. Have I, have I got enough uh, out of my career? Have I, have I achieved my goals and what I wanted to accomplish here? Maybe there's shame in my parenting, that I'm, I'm messing up my kids and I'm just such a failure there, or, or I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm struggling with my spouse, or I'm, I'm struggling with what people say. See, these are all things that I, I struggle with. These are all the thoughts that go through my mind, that I wish I was in better shape, especially after running Foam Fest yesterday. I'm feeling the effects of that now. And so there's this message of shame that just starts to run through my head that says there's something not right, there's something wrong. There's the thoughts that I'm, I'm screwing up my kids. Then there's the things that I've said to people that haunt me days, weeks, months, and even years later, where I'll just be driving along and out of nowhere I'll have a memory of something I said and I'm just filled with so much shame in that moment, I feel like I could just rip the steering wheel in two. And then there's the comparison to other people. Am I, am I funny enough? Am I, am I smart enough? Am I, am I cool enough? Am I okay with you? What do you think of me? And all those messages of shame, all those questions just linger in our minds. And so much like Adam and Eve, we, we hide. See, Adam and Eve, they began to sow fig leaves right away, hiding not from God, because that was going to come later, but hiding from each other. 
No longer was it okay to see their spouse naked, or they're supposed to see them naked. And so they sewed together fig leaves, and we do the same thing, except we hide behind masks, put on masks to, that, that we act and behave in a way that we think is appropriate, depending on the group, depending on the time. What do I need to do to gain your acceptance and approval of me? And so we hide behind those masks because you can't see the real me. You can't see my struggles. Or maybe we withdraw. We pull away from a group so that there's a safe distance. That You can see me. You get to know me, but you don't get to know the real me. You don't really get to know what I'm up against because I'm trying to protect myself. And then there's the self-medicating we do, trying to deal with the shame. Maybe it's just bury yourself in your job, in your career. I'll just become so career-focused. I don't have to think about anything else, and, and then I can just pass out when I get, get home at night. Or maybe it's video games. Maybe it's exercise. Maybe it's scrolling on social media, just this endless scroll. Next reel after next reel, next post after next post, where you're just, just immersing yourself in other people's lives so you don't have to look at your own. Maybe it's streaming services like Netflix or, or Amazon Prime or just watching TV. Maybe it's food or sex or it's pornography. All the things we're doing just to feel different. Maybe to feel a little bit of comfort. Maybe to feel a little bit of love. Maybe just to feel something other than the shame and the guilt and the sense of a total failure that I believe I am. But you know what? Maybe, maybe the worst response to shame is where you try to perform in a way to silence shame. Where you perform in such a way that you, you have an answer that, that, will, that shame will sit there and go, you know, you're right, Norm, you're not that bad after all. Well done, just keep going. I say that might be the worst response because you'll never actually silence shame. You'll never win the argument, so to speak. It's like arguing with a two-year-old. The, they don't care what you say. They're just going to continue to haunt you, continue to come back at you with all these messages of not good enough. You've got to do more. Because the thing is, you can never perform well enough to escape that shame. You can never do it right. You can never do it long enough. You can never do enough. There's always demanding more. And so we struggle with that. At least we struggle with that as long as we're not trusted in Jesus. And that's our hope, is that Jesus has come to rescue us from that battle, rescue us from shame, kicking our butt all over the, all over the place. And this morning in the passage that we're going to look at is, I believe, a, a powerful passage, an incredible passage that shows us what not to do in battling shame and what we can do instead. So let's read together in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Paul writes, but if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face fading as it was, how will the ministry of the spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more than that which remains is in glory. Let's pray. Father, what a glorious passage. 
What an incredible passage of hope, I pray, for each and every one of us, that we would see what you're offering to us, what you're, what you're providing us, and what we can receive for ourselves and offer to other people as well. So, Father, this is a, a critical message, so I dare not try and teach it on my own. I'm going to trust you, Lord, to provide the words, the ideas, the illustrations, even the passages that you want to share with your people. Because I know your heart, Jesus. I know what you want to com communicate to every one of us so that we would live in the freedom that you've given to us. In your name we pray, amen. Well, let's take a, a brief moment to remind ourselves of the context of this passage here that we're in. The, kind of halfway through chapter 2 all the way to really the end of chapter 7 or around the middle of chapter 7, Paul's describing what it means to be a minister of the new covenant. He's defending himself because the people have accused him that he's not qualified, not good enough. And so he's explaining this is what a minister of the new covenant looks like. And he, and he started off by really saying, who's adequate for such an incredible job? Who's worthy of such an incredible thing? And the answer is none of us, except what he said earlier in the chapter 3, which was God's made us adequate. But my question to you is, who is the minister? Is it just particular people? Who are the ministers of the new covenant? What do you think? Norm is. Yeah. Brian is. Right? Michael is. We're all ministers of the new covenant. It's not just me who's up here because I'm going to you know, teach the word of God to you. Each and every one of us are ministers of the new covenant. And that's a beautiful opportunity. That you don't have to send people to somewhere else to share life with them. That you get that opportunity. You have that privilege. And that's what he's saying here is that people are struggling. Look around. Watch people. And you just see the weight they're carrying. You see the burden that they're under. Maybe it's your family members. Maybe it's your friends. Maybe it's your coworkers. Maybe it's even just strangers that you see at the mall or at a bus stop or just walking down the street. And you can just see the burden that they're carrying. Well, you and I, we get to be ministers in those moments that Jesus may lead you to go and speak to that person to go and offer them hope, offer them this ministry of freedom. And that's what he's trying to offer to us. And what we're offering is something way better than Moses. That's really what he's comparing here. There's old covenant and a new covenant. And the old covenant is the covenant of Moses, the, the, the covenant of performance, where it's all about rules. It's all about standards. It's all about you measuring up to things. And that old covenant would include the 613 commands that God gave Israel, but specifically, it would include the Ten Commandments that God gave Moses on Mount Sinai. See, we have to understand that that old covenant, that system of rules and performing and striving and struggling, is a killer. And it's not, it's not meant for you and I. It's not meant for us at this moment now because of, of what it does. And he says here, it's, it's a ministry of death and it's a ministry of condemnation. So let's understand the law first. Why, why would God give the law in the first place? What was the purpose of that if not simply giving us a, a, an ethics to live by? If it's not the rule book that we're now to exist and live by today, why would God give the law to Moses? Well, let's think of it this way. Back in the garden, what was the lie that Eve fell for? 
What was the deception that, that Satan off, offered up to her that she believed? That if she ate of that tree, she would be like who? She'd be like God. And so essentially, back in that garden, that was the belief. That was the idea that I could do something to be like God. And I kind of think that God says, okay, let's do it. Go for it. In fact, I'll give you 10 simple commands to be like me. And that's essentially what the law is. The law is, in a way, it's describing the character of God, but in the negative. Think about it. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and come short of what? The glory of God. And so the law was basically defining the standard. The law was defining what is the target. You want to be like God? Here it is. Here's just 10. Just 10. And you look at them. It's don't murder. Why? Because God's not a murderer. Don't lie. Because God's not a liar. Don't steal. Because God's not a thief. Don't commit adultery. Because God's not an adulterer. In essence, we're seeing the character of God in the law, which could really be summarized in one word, which is love. It was just love in the negative in the law sense. And so that's what it was describing. And so Israel receiving this thought, perfect. Now we know what it means to be like God. And now we can do it. And, and we just will strive and we'll, we'll do our best to follow these 10 commands and, and really the 613 commands in total. And they did that. But then they had questions. Well, what does it mean to honor the Sabbath? So teachers wrote commentaries, and they broke those 613 commands into many more commands about you know, how much weight you could carry on a Sabbath. You couldn't carry more than two kilograms, because to do more than that would be more like work. You could only do so many steps, because if you did too many steps, that too would be work. You could spit, but you couldn't spit in the dirt. Because spitting in the dirt would make mud, and that would be like mud for bricks, and that would be work. And so they began to make all kinds of crazy rules and laws. And what's interesting is Jesus shows up, and he's like, you guys are missing the point. So what does he do on a Sabbath? He sees a blind man, spits in the dirt, makes mud, puts the mud in his eyes, heals the blindness, and then he says to him, pick up your pallet, pick up your mat, which weighed more than the, the weight requirement. And then he says, go walk, walk all the way across town to break the step requirement and go wash your eyes out in the pool. What was Jesus doing in that miracle? He, he, was, he was healing the guy, but he's also sending a message to Israel saying, you're missing the point. It's not about these rules and regulations. There's something deeper to it. There's something about the character in your heart. So then he preaches the Sermon on the Mount, who one man said must have been the most depressing day in the history of Israel. Because he comes to them and he's like, let's talk about the law. And maybe they're thinking, oh, good. You know, we could, we could do with a few less. We, we thought we could do it, but we're struggling. So could we renegotiate the terms of the, de the deal? Because it's, it's hard. It's brutal. And he says to them that in order for you to be okay, your righteousness has to surpass that of the Pharisees. Think about that. I mean, at that point, the Pharisees were the religious, most moralistic, seemingly the successful people. And he says, even they're not good enough. You got to do better than them. In fact, he says in Matthew 5, 48, you got to be perfect. How perfect? As perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So you heard don't murder. Really what it's saying is don't even hate anybody in your heart. 
You think it's just not enough to commit adultery. No, no, you can't even lust after another person. And so he's explaining to them that the issue isn't behavior, it's your heart, at which point every single person listening to it must have been despairing, must have been overcome with, with fear and dread because they must have been thinking, who could ever be good enough? You know, the disciples had that understanding, right? Remember when they said, this is impossible. Nobody can be good enough. It's impossible. And Jesus says, you're right. It is. It's impossible for man, but only possible with God. You see, that was the point of the law. The the law was not showing you a way to salvation. The law was not giving you a way to live. The law was not telling you these are the morals and the ethics by which you now must live by. The law had one simple purpose, and that was to beat you up. It was that ministry. It was to serve up death and condemnation. It was to make you feel like a failure over and over and over and over and over. It wasn't meant to give you hope. It was meant to expose that you can't do it. You can't be the man or woman you desire to be. But then it was supposed to lead you to Jesus. Look what Paul says in in Galatians chapter 3, beginning of verse 23. He says, but before faith came, before we had our trust in Jesus, he says we were kept up in custody under the law. The law had dominion and jurisdiction over us. Now, maybe it wasn't the Ten Commandments if you're not Jewish, but there was another law that I guarantee you were under. Maybe it was the law of your family. Maybe if you grew up in a church, the the religious laws that church placed on you in terms of what you could do or not do, where you could go or not go, the music you could listen to, what movies you could watch, whether you could show up in church with with a baseball hat or not. There's all kinds of laws. And then there's the rules of your family. Did you have to go to school or, or was it okay to not go to school? Was there a certain job you had to get? How you had to act? How you had to behave? How you talked? What you, what you wore in terms of your outfit? Then there was your own personal law. Then there was society's laws. We were all under law at some way, in some way, in some part. And the law had dominion and jurisdiction over us. Being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed, excluded from that. Verse 24, therefore the law has become our tutor. Now, tutor might imply teacher, and that's not what the law was. The word here is paedagogos, and it means child guide. It's your nanny or your governor or your governess. It's the one that walked around with a big stick to apply to the seat of learning. When you made a mistake, smack. You you failed. Not good enough. Wrong. You're screwing up. There's a problem, and it was just constantly smacking you and I over and over again. So it's our child guide, but here's the thing, to lead us to Jesus. That we would see that we are a total and utter failure to live this Christian life. We cannot be good enough on our own. Enter Jesus Christ, the Savior, the one who's going to rescue you from this. But here's what's so glorious is, but now that faith has come, now that you and I have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, you're no longer under the child guide. You're no longer under the law. You see, that's the, that's the huge mistake we make as believers. That, that today, on this moment right now, there are many churches out there where, where pastors are standing up there and they are beating up their people, bringing them back to the law. 
Where they said for salvation, just come as you are. It doesn't matter what you've done, who you did it with, how many times you screwed up, just come as you are. But then the lie is, as soon as you come to Jesus, here are the rules. Here's what you need to do. And make sure you do it well. Make sure you do it more often. And make sure you do it better than you're doing it today. And we struggle with that. Because we haven't understood the purpose of the law. See, look what Paul writes in 1 Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, he begins with this, the goal of our instruction, the purpose of, of why I'm up here teaching is that we will learn to love, that we will learn to offer life to other people, and that this love would come from a pure heart, a new heart. And it's, and it's a, a, a good conscience, meaning our, our, our more, our, sorry, our, what driving us isn't self-centered, but what's driving us is looking out for other people and would come from sincere faith, trusting in Jesus Christ. And do you realize he made all of that possible on the cross where you were forgiven, but you were also crucified and made new, born again as a righteous person, born again as a new, as a new being. So he goes on to say now in verse 6, but some men have strayed from this. They've, they've gotten off, off track of, of this message of, of who you are, your identity in Christ that leads to loving other people, and they go to a fruitless discussion, an empty discussion that goes nowhere. Well, what, what's that fruitless discussion? Wanting to be teachers of the law. So now they get up and they, they implore you, here's the law, here's the, the five steps to be a good Christian. Here are the seven things to be a good wife. Here are the 98 things to be a good husband. Here are the four things to be a good parent. And over and over and over again, more rules, more regulation, more formulas, wanting to be a teacher of the law, though they do not understand what they say or the matters for which they make such confident assertions. I love it. They're a bunch of fools. And that's biblical, by the way, that word fools we're going to see soon. Because they're leading you back to the law. But they don't understand what the law is doing. It's a ministry of death and condemnation. Paul goes on to say in verse 8 that the law is not made for you and I. For we know the law is good. The law is holy. It's righteous. And we saw it's the character of God in written form. Nothing wrong with the law. If one uses it lawfully, if one uses it properly, realizing the fact it's not made for a righteous person. It's not made for people who are already in Christ. It's made for those people who are not yet in Christ. And he goes on, for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers and their mothers, for murderers. And for immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, like, like Volkswagen lovers. I mean, it's meant for those people. It's not meant for you and I. And so we're free now from the law. And so, so Christianity, because of what Jesus on the cross, is not Jesus plus Moses. It's not Jesus plus the Ten Commandments. It's not Jesus plus Christian ethics and, and morality and, and living up to formulas and rules. It's Jesus plus nothing. Jesus has done it all. 
and you see to be a minister in the new covenant, we get to offer that to other people. We get to offer that hope and that encouragement that you don't need to do anything to be okay anymore. Jesus has done enough. But in order to offer that to other people, you first got to offer it to yourself. Remember, love others as you love yourself. If you're placing yourself under law, under these standards, under these expectations, and under this need to perform, then you will be doing it to other people. And so we need to be free from it. And, and this issue here of going back to the law is, is probably the, the, the most fundamental struggle that we have as believers. I say that because you read through Paul's letters to all these various churches over and over and over again. He had to come back to this simple truth. And I think it's an issue that we, the church has struggled with since Pentecost, since it was born. Listen to these verses here that Paul just hammers home the point. Romans 6, verse 14. For sin shall not be your master, for you're not under law but under grace. When you and I go back to the law, what's going to master us? Sin. As we're going to see, sin gets its power, its dominion from the law, but, but we've been set free from the law because now we're under a new covenant, under a new system, under grace. Romans 7, 4, therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. That when Jesus died on that cross, you and I placed into him the old spirit, the old man was crucified with him. Glorious truth. And you, you died to sin and its power and dominion over you. You died to the world, but you also now died to the law. The law has lost jurisdiction over you. The law can't command you, control you, or do anything to you any more than a police officer can arrest a dead man. It's over. Jurisdiction ended. So you, you were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you may be joined to another. Who's the another? The Jesus. We're now married to him. We're joined to him, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. Do you realize that if you go to the law, if you go to the rules, the formulas, you cannot bear fruit for God? Because there's only one that can bear fruit. And who's that? Spirit. Think about Galatians 5. The fruit of the? Spirit. Not fruit of the Christian. Not the fruit of your hard work, the fruit of your labors, the fruit of the Spirit. And so in Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews in verse 8 says, he said there's a new covenant. When he, made, when he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. It still has a point. It still has a purpose for the unbelievers, right? We saw that earlier in Timothy. But for you and I in Christ, it's obsolete. It served its purpose. It's led you to Jesus. We have Jesus. Why do you need to go back to the formula? If, if, think about it this way. If, if you're going to bake a cake, would you go to the recipe when you've got the person who wrote the recipe with you right there? That's what we've got. We've got Jesus. We've got something way better than the law, than the rule book. And yet, time and time again, we struggle because we fall for the trap that says, now that you've come to Jesus, just as you are, you've got to get better. 
And look what Paul says to, to the church in Galatia that was struggling with this. So they were struggling with what some commentators call Galatianism. It's different than legalism and different than antinomianism. I just say those terms that sound smart. Did it work? No. So antinomianism is basically license, the sense of lawlessness. You don't care what you do. It's fine. You know, you can get drunk. You can watch pornography. You can listen to country music. Whatever you want to do, God won't care about it one bit. That's lawlessness, antinomianism against the law. Legalism is the idea that you can somehow earn your salvation by doing all the right things, by going to church, by giving, by wearing the right outfits, by saying all the right words and not saying the wrong words. You know what those wrong words are. And you can earn yourself. That's legalism. But Galatianism is a sense where you're saved by grace, but now you live by the law. After salvation, you now struggle to somehow behave right and live right. So look what he says to them in Galatians 3 and verse 1. You foolish Galatians. You fools. My, my favorite translation of this, by the way, is the J.B. Phillips. It's, the, it's a paraphrase by a man named J.B. Phillips, just in case you weren't sure. And he says to this passage, he translates it this way, oh, you dear idiots. You dear, dear idiots. I love you, but you're an idiot. That's essentially what he's saying to these people here. You fools, you're, 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 you're idiots. Who has bewitched you? before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed or crucified. Some of you were there, he's saying. Some of you witnessed it. Some of you actually saw Jesus and his sacrifice. And he asked them a rhetorical question. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing from faith? I can almost hear their answer in the most sheepish voice possible. By, by faith. We didn't earn it. We didn't work for it. We would never be good enough to work for it. So he says, verse 3, then are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Are you now believing that somehow you can overcome your struggles with the law, with the rules, with dedication and work harder, work harder and pulling up the bootstraps and being serious and, and more accomplishments and doing this and doing that. Do you think somehow you can improve upon what Jesus has done? Because it's Jesus plus nothing. And yet we do it. We go back to it. Over and over and over again, we go back to the law. And we experience that minister of death and condemnation. That, that voice in our head, that voice of shame. You're not doing enough, Eleanor. You, you just got to buckle down this time. Get really serious about your struggles and pull through. And, and you know what? Maybe, maybe, Brad, you need someone to hold you accountable. That's what you need. You, you probably need five people to hold you accountable. You're a big guy. So, so you need a lot of people to hold you accountable. And then, then maybe, maybe you'll be all right. And Marco, just because you're at the back row doesn't mean I don't see you. I, I, I know what's going on there. And you, you should do more, I think. I think that's really what's required at this point. You've got the summer off, for goodness sake. Right? You should really, really tone, you know, tone up on certain things in your life. You will thank me later for it. And no matter what you do, it's always more. Do better. 
That, was, that might have been good yesterday, but you know what? Today's a whole new day. You're starting from scratch, so get at it. And then when you fail, when you give in to the addiction, when you, when you say something foolish, when you let someone down, when you overcommit and underdeliver, there's that voice right there just leaps in at that moment just to beat you up. That condemnation, not good enough. question is, well, why would we ever do that then? Why, why would we ever go back to the law? Well, part of it is because that's what we've been taught. But, but more fundamentally, that's what the flesh wants us to do. That's what the flesh requires of us actually to do. See, the world presents this idea that somehow if you just were more serious and more dedicated, then you would be okay. For fun, Google motivational sayings and see what pops up. I did that this week, and here are some of the ones that just quickly popped up. Nothing works like working. Oh, it means I got to work, and I got to work harder. I got to do more. The only thing that stands in the way of your success is you. Oh, that's right. Yep, I, I just keep... Self-sabotaging, I'm blowing it. I just, I just, I'm not doing enough. Don't let your excuses be stronger than you. Ah, oh, I'm so weak. Ah, oh, I just, I just, you know what? Tomorrow, tomorrow's, tomorrow's gonna start, fresh start. Tomorrow, tomorrow's gonna be the day. Don't wish for it, don't hope for it, work for it. Ah, oh, that's right, I'm, I'm too passive. I gotta get more serious about it. And never apologize for your high standards. People who want to be in your life will rise up to meet them. So that last one, though, we, we flip. And we put ourselves under that. And think no one's going to accept me because of their high standards and I'm not measuring up. And whether that be my spouse, whether that be my kids or my friends, and worst off, it's often God. Where we... We know God loves you because he has to, he, you know, Jesus and all. But deep down, he's really disappointed with you. That Cheryl, you just need to go hang out with Marco a little bit and the two of you together will figure it out. And then, then maybe God will be pleased with you if you just worked a bit more. Because he's got high standards and all, right? Be perfect. And you see, that's what the flesh says. It sees what the world's offering you. It sees what the world's modeling, and it says, that's the answer. That's what you need to do. You just, just got to drop your excuses. You just got to work harder. You just, just got to be enough, and then you'll be OK. And you see, the flesh needs that, because the flesh draws its power from the law. 1 Corinthians 15 says, apart from the law, sin is dead. Sin's got no power. So whenever the flesh is operating, whenever indwelling sin's operating in your life, I guarantee you there's the law. That it's put you under the law in some way, some form. So in Romans 7, 10 and 11, it says, in this commandment, Paul, Paul in chapter 7, he's, he's detailing his great struggle. And the commandment in particular is don't covet. It's really a great commandment if you ever mastered it, Paul's thinking. Think about it. Coveting leads to probably every other sin. Why, why did someone commit murder? Well, because they were coveting probably something they had. Why did they steal? Because they were 
coveting that possession. Why did they commit adultery? Because they were coveting that person's body. And so Paul's thinking, if I just mastered coveting and I don't covet, I'll be a better Christian. I'll be a better minister of the gospel. I'll have a better testimony. I'll be, I'll be freer. I bet you my cholesterol will go down. I just need to overcome coveting, and everything will be better. And this commandment, he says, which was a result in life, I'd feel better, and God would love me more. God would be finally be pleased with me. It proved to result in death for me. Why? For sin, the flesh, taking opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. The flesh needs the law. And whenever we offer the law to other people as a way forward, we're essentially saying, here you go, sin, have at her. We're empowering sin in that person's life. We're empowering the flesh right now to beat them up. And they, they go, OK, all right, that's the target. I just got to work for it. And their eyes are now on the target. And who are they off of? It's off of Jesus. And we're just thinking about the sin and not doing it. And we're not thinking about Jesus anymore. We're thinking about my shortcomings and my flaws and, and, and the, the weight I need to lose and, and how you got to get stronger and how I need to get smarter and how I need to have more accomplishments and I need to do this and do this and do this. And suddenly now I'm back to the ministry of death and condemnation. You see, what the law does is it robs you and I from experiencing the life of Jesus. It's ours. We possess it, but allows us to, it robs us from experiencing it. It robs us from the glory of God. What's interesting, these five verses we're looking at this morning, the word glory shows up 10 times. The glory of God that he's offering us. We're going to understand that glory more next week, but, but simply put, the glorious work is what God's done in you. Who he's made you to be. I thought about this week, how do I, how do I convey that to you guys? Because it's so good. And he led me to this passage in Titus. It's, it's a longer passage, but, but listen to it. Just actually, like this time, read it with me. Like, listen to it. And hear the words of, of our Father as he speaks to us about what Jesus accomplished on the cross, beginning of verse 3 of chapter 3. He says, we also once were foolish ourselves. Can I get an amen? Oh, you guys know you're bigger fools than that. I know it. Amen. Amen. There you go. Norm's the only honest people. Right? We were fools ourselves, thinking that we could somehow save ourselves, do, do enough. We were disobedient. We were deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, even hating one another. That's how messed up we were before we knew Jesus. But, oh, I love that word, but everything changes. But when you got serious about your sin, is that what it says? When you cleaned up your life, when you got sober, when you overcame that addiction, no. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, that's Jesus. He saved us. Not on the basis of your deeds, of what you've done in righteousness, not because you gave, not because you helped out in Sunday school, not because you, you witnessed, not because of anything you did, but according to his mercy, 
By the washing, you were made clean. How? By the regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. That, that just talks about how you were born again. That the old you was crucified and buried and is gone, and you were regenerated, remade, reborn as a new person. As Ephesians 4 says, in the likeness of God, in holiness and in righteousness. And that's the truth. That's who you are right now. Even on your worst day, even in the midst of your struggles and your sin, that's who you are. Because it wasn't based on what you did, but by his mercy, by what he did. By the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, being made righteous by his grace, that's what the word justified means, we'd be heirs or made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Did you hear it? Did, did you hear what his voice was saying, what he was saying to you and I? He said, Jesus, give me some phrase, give me some words for these people here. And he just kept saying over and over again, tell Luba it's finished. That there's nothing that Luba needs to do to be okay with me anymore. Let, her, let, let Danielle know that I'm proud of her and I love her. And I'm pleased, so pleased with her. And let Danya know that that voice of shame isn't coming from me. That there's not a single moment, not a single second that I'm disappointed in her. I knew she was going to fail. I knew she was going to make mistakes. But I've loved her every moment. And all I ask is she trusts me on that. Let Ryan know that he's my boy and I'm a proud papa. That's finished. That Josh, you don't have anything to prove anymore. It's done. I took care of it on the cross. This is who you are. Will you receive it? And then I thought about Matthew, Matthew 11, beginning verse 28, that very famous passage, come to me all that are weary and heavy laden. Do you realize the context here? He's talking to people under the law, people who are struggling and they're failing and they're, they're just screwing up over and over again. He says, you who are beaten up right now, come to me. Come to me, and I, I'll give you rest. You don't have to struggle anymore. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Let's, let's take off the old covenant. Take off the, the law of achieving, the law of performing, the law of struggling on your own. And we're going to put a new yoke on you. But this new yoke is good. It's, it's called the new covenant. It's called grace. It's a ministry of the spirit. It's a ministry of righteousness. It's what I've done. It's what I've accomplished for you. For I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you're going to find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. It's finished. Will you risk believing that now? Will you risk trusting that there's nothing left for you to add? That you're never going to get more loved, more holy, more righteous, more acceptable than you are today. And then offer that to other people. Not because you have to, but because you simply can't contain it. Because when that bucket is filled up, it keeps getting poured into. And it starts to overflow. And now you get to offer that to other people. What an incredible opportunity we have. 
as ministers of this new covenant. Let's pray. Father, you know the struggle we're in. It's a struggle that we will be in to the day we leave this earth suit, to the day that you either call, come to bring us home or we go home, because the flesh is always trying to put us back under the law, always, always questioning whether we're enough, always questioning whether we've done enough, always questioning whether we're actually good enough, if we've got what it takes. And Father, you ask us now to take a chance on you, to risk that it's true, that it is finished. Not that we'll somehow arrive at any destination, because that's not the point, but that we would spend the rest of our days discovering the limitless love you have for us. It's a good thing we've got eternity, because that well is deep. And I pray, Father, that as people who risk it, people who trust it, you will live in and through us in such a way that the world would see you in us. In your name we pray, amen. You've been listening to the New Life Fellowship podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more great content, please be sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca, and sign up for our mailing list. Subscribers will receive our The Life in the Apartment ebook that is sure to encourage and bless. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to watch the latest services and additional video content. New Life Fellowship is a registered charity that is supported by the giving of partners and friends. All donations will be received. If you would like to donate, donate at newlifekw.ca. Your giving is highly valued and appreciated. You are loved. Take care.